So the one other thing, there we go. The one other thing that I want to talk about, the term that I think is important for us to know, and it's related to the idea that this is a, a conversation about investing and not philanthropy, is financial return. And this is going to bring us straight to our sugya in the Talmud, straight to the discussion that we're going to look at today. So financial return is the uh, expectation I have of what I will earn back when I invest, say, you know, if I invest $100, what do I expect to earn back if I am investing that in a company and I'm buying stock in a company? Or if I'm making a loan with interest, and we can get a little bit into loans with interest, that's also a topic for another day. Um, so what's the financial return expectation that I have? And in general, when we invest, we have an expectation. We've been taught to have an expectation around financial return. And that is a crucial piece of the puzzle around socially responsible investing, because when socially responsible investing started, there was a lot of skepticism from the mainstream financial community. And that skepticism was around financial return. Will we have to sacrifice financial return in order to align our investments with our values? And I don't say that with... Um, I don't mean to be harsh or judgmental when I say that because I sit on the board of uh, several institutions that are that are fiduciaries and I have a fiduciary role in those institutions. Those institutions rely on financial return to fund really essential programs. So um, on the one hand, it's really understandable why we focus on financial return. On the other hand, uh, there has been a robust uh, change in the landscape since socially responsible investing started. So, you know, we could even throw out for the 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 folks assembled on the call and those who are listening after the fact to take a moment and consider for yourself. Um, what do you think is socially responsible investing uh, less lucrative, more lucrative, or the same? And let me just say a little bit more about what I mean by that. Socially responsible investing could be more lucrative than more no than than sort of quote unquote traditional investing because. Let's say, you know, a company that's run well, that treats its workers well, that thinks about its long-term sustainability and the long-term sustainability of the planet that it finds itself on, yeah, maybe that's a company that's going to last longer and do better in the long run. On the other hand, you might argue socially responsible investing inevitably will involve sacrificing financial returns because, um, you know, you're giving up opportunity, you're, you're limiting your universe of what you can invest in. And the companies that are the most willing to do whatever it takes to earn a profit might be the companies that are the most profitable. And then maybe it's just a wash in the middle. That's like a third option. So take a minute and think which one you uh, you would guess, which of those perspectives, which of those um, which of those perspectives you think you'd align with. And then I'll tell you that socially responsible investing is not. Uh, it has been demonstrated by substantial research to not require sacrificing financial return. So you can do good while doing well. There's a big debate about whether you can do better by doing well, that I'm going to leave unresolved, but it's pretty clear from the research of thousands of studies done over the past number of decades that you can do good while doing well, that you don't have to sacrifice financial return in order to do socially responsible investing. And that brings us to our conversation in the Talmud. Um, I want to frame the question as if I can help another person without costing myself anything, do I have a religious obligation to do so? This is the first core question when it comes to a Jewish approach to socially responsible investing or impact investing, because most of us, and I say this myself included, for many years, I didn't pay uh, much attention 
to what my investments were doing. And most of our Jewish institutions and most of us as individuals aren't paying close attention to whatever um, our investments are doing. And the financial system itself is obtuse. It's hard to get a window into what impact my investments are actually having. But let's say the majority of folks, certainly this is true in the secular world, the majority of folks are invested in funds that invest in tobacco companies, even though profiting off of smoking would seem to be a violation of the biblical precept of Lota Amor Dam don't stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. And most folks are invested in fossil fuel corporations that are the primary drivers of the climate crisis, despite the fact that if you screen out fossil fuels from a portfolio over the past 10 years, you would have actually done better financially. Right? So there's the argument again that doing good doesn't require sacrificing doing well. But most of us still are invested that way. So um, does the entire Jewish community have a moral or even, let's say, halachic obligation to change how we invest? And let's not underestimate how big of a shift that would be. It would require a transformational shift in the way we think about capital, the way we think about investing. So that's a big question. Um, and I'd like to explore that with you today. So um, I'm going to also drop the link in the chat to a Safaria uh, source sheet that you can follow along, but I'll also share my screen on. And I'm going to pick up today also where my friend and colleague, Rabbi Will Friedman, uh, ended with you all several months ago on another uh, session with Uri Tzedek. So it starts with this Mishnah. If you can all see it. So I'll read the Mishnah out loud, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Um, uh, Rabbi Will did a, did a fantastic job of unpacking it pretty deeply, but we'll start from here as a springboard. So there are four types of uh, characters in a human being, Arba Midot Ba'adam. One type of character is the one that says, mine is mine and yours is yours. This is an average quality or a commonplace type, and some say that this is a Sodom type of character. So those are two, Rabbi Will noted, those are two very different analyses of the same attitude in life. My attitude in life being what's mine and is mine and what's yours is yours. Well, that seems like a pretty run of the mill or average way to approach the world. Um, but it also contains the quality of Sodom, of Sodom, which is a quality of societal destruction so evil that the entire city got wiped out by God because of the evil way that people were treating each other. So what is it about this attitude that is that has that, that contains within it the kernels of such evil or such societally destructive behavior, let's say? Um, I'll just quickly run through the others. Um, one that says mine is yours and yours is mine, that's an amha'aret, an uneducated or maybe naive person. One that says, mine is yours and yours is yours. That's a pious person. That's a tzaddik. May we all aspire to that. And one that says, mine is mine and yours is mine, we can all see is a wicked person. So those last two, we can see the extremes. They make a lot of sense. Um, but this first one is very interesting. Um, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours is the quality of Sodom. So I want to look at one analysis of that. This is from um, the medieval commentator Rashi commenting elsewhere in the Talmud. Rashi here is commenting on a discussion about what happens to inherited property after a father dies and has two sons. And um, the there in the Talmud, the phrase is used, 
kofin al midat stone. We force somebody not to act like the quality of Sodom. And here Rashi lays out for us what does that mean? It means one benefits while one while the other one suffers no loss. So this is the quality of Sodom. When it's possible to help somebody else, this one benefits, without sacrificing anything of my own, the other suffers no loss. is a fundamentally human way to behave. If I can help you without costing myself anything, I should do so. And not doing so, while it might technically be legal within the parameters of law or the halachic system, is a society, societally destructive way to behave. So let's just look at a couple of examples of what this kind of behavior would be. Um, Doctor, The late Dr. Aaron Levine, who wrote a number of books on economics and Jewish law, gives an example of giving somebody a ride home after a benefit dinner. You were both at this dinner, you're going the same direction, it's literally the same street, uh, it's not going to cost you anything, and the person says, could I have a ride? Do you have a religious obligation to say yes? Because this one benefits and that one's, you know, your friend benefits by getting a ride home without having to pay for a taxi and you don't suffer any loss. Another example is um, I think about my two uh, older daughters who fight about like at breakfast, there's a there's one water bottle on the table and one of them takes a drink and then sets it down next to her. And the other one says, no, I want a drink. Says, no, it's next to me. So like actually, there's one water bottle you could both benefit and drink without either of you suffering. So that's a case where I am Kofin Almidat Sodom. I do force my daughter to share with um, her sister. Uh, but, uh, but so that's the concept of sodomite behavior. And the Talmud includes a number of examples of the ways that the people of Sodom, maybe within the letter of the law, miserably treated others, like visitors and guests who came in from out of town. So that leads to an amazing Talmudic discussion about this principle. If I can benefit others without helping, oh, sorry, without costing myself anything, am I obligated to do so? And here I brought the text. Um, I brought it only in the English because it's pretty long, um, and the Hebrew is down at the bottom. But we'll only we'll we'll focus on the English for now. So this is in a discussion in Baba Kama, which is the first tractate in um, the uh, in the Seder Nizikin in the in the 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 section of the Talmud that's dealing with civil and monetary issues. So this is like the, this is like right at the beginning. This is page 20 of Baba Kama, and this question comes up. Um, in, con uh, in connection with a previous question, I'll, I'll focus here on the bold and I'll sort of summarize for you. So you can follow along here in the text or you can just listen to me um, summarize it. So Rav Chista said to Rami Bar Kama, you weren't with us last night within our boundary, within our tachum, when we raised some very interesting dilemmas concerning exceptional matters. Rami Bar Kama said to him, what are the exceptional matters you discussed? Rav Chista said to him, with regard to one who resides in another's courtyard, without his knowledge or permission, must he pay him rent for living there or does he not need to pay him rent? So to summarize that in one word, this is a question of squatters. If somebody's squatting in somebody else's courtyard. So the Gemara clarifies. The Gemara asks, what are the circumstances if you, of, of this question? If we say that the case concerns a courtyard that does not stand to be rented out. So let's say, um, and, and the, the man squatting there is someone who, have, who would not have rented other living quarters because he has other lodgings available for free. 
then this is a case where one does not benefit and the other one does not suffer a loss. So we're going to go through all four categories, right? On the one side, we have, does the person benefit or not? And on the other side, we have, does it cause a loss or not? And we're going to eliminate three of those. Um, I'll sort of scroll down here. We'll say, if you're not benefiting, then that's not even a relevant question. Of course, you don't pay. And if you're causing the other person a loss, then of course, you have to compensate them for that loss. So the question here, and I think this is really the Gemara trying to emphasize, the Talmud trying to emphasize, like, let's go through a thought experiment and really try to say, what does it look like um, if one benefits and doesn't cost the other anything? And I think that's valuable because when I've taught that class, when I've taught this class before, um, I've had folks, um, I, I had a student once who who said, now, wait a minute, Rabbi Jacob, I actually literally have had squatters on my property before, and it definitely caused me a loss. It cost me a lot of money to get rid of them, and I had to go through this whole hassle, um, and they caused a huge amount of damage to my property. So acknowledged. And the, the, the Talmud is wanting to set that case aside and come up with a hypothetical of if they were taking care of the property, and actually later we'll see that the Talmud sort of forces the assumption, maybe they're caring for the property, maybe they're keeping away supernatural beings or demons or cause or preventing deterioration. They're there to catch that first pipe or whatever it is. Let's just assume this one benefits while the other suffers no loss. So, um, so I'll scroll back up. This is Rav Chista saying to Rami Barchama, this is the question we raised in the Beit Midrash last night. It was an amazing question. So um, Rami Barchama responds. I'm right here in the middle. Rami Barchama said to him, this dilemma is not new. It's discussed in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah already provided a solution. You can imagine what Rami Barchama might be feeling in this moment, might be feeling a little defensive, a little left out. And so he comes up with this retort. That's not a tough question. It's already in the Mishnah. And Rav Chista says, which Mishnah are you referring to? Rami Barchama says back, after you serve me, I will tell you. You know, do an act of service for me. So Rav Chista takes Rami Bar Chama's scarf and folds it as an act of service. Um, and then Rami Bar Chama um, finally says to him, okay, this is the Mishnah I was referring to. Um, and it, it's a reference to the Mishnah that we are building off of earlier in the Talmud. And I won't go too deep into that Mishnah, but suffice it to say that um, Rami Bar Chama makes an attempt here. And then that's sort of the end of that part of the narrative. And we have a little comment coming afterward from Rava. Rava says, how little does a man who has the assistance of his Lord have to worry or be concerned about the possibility that his opinion may not be accepted? This is a little bit of a dig. It's like a little sarcastic. Like, wow, Rami Barchama must have really had siyata dishmaya. He must have really had divine help that Rav Chista didn't object because there's such an obvious objection here. Um, so, um, and the objection in this case, I won't go deep into the case, but the objection in this case and all of the subsequent cases the Gemara is going to bring is, well, that's a case of this one benefits and that one does suffer a loss. That's how the Gemara is going to dismiss this example and four more examples after this as the Gemara grapples with this question of one who benefits while another suffers no loss. Okay, so let's pause there for a moment. I just want to review what we looked at um, because I think it's amazing, literarily, as a, the Talmud is just, it's, the construction is so amazing from a literary perspective. So we have Rav Chista saying to Rami Barkham, you weren't with us last night in the Tehum, in the boundary. That could mean you just weren't in the Beit Midrash, you weren't nearby. Or it could mean that it was Shabbat and Rami Barkham was staying too far away and he couldn't make it to the Beit Midrash, to the study hall on Shabbat. Which is interesting because we're talking about people staying in other people's courtyards. It's like what an amazing moment of like, 
oh, if you had stayed a little closer, Rami Barhama, would you have been able to come to this conversation and been able to be present in person? I don't know, maybe. There's an opening there literarily. And then uh, Rav Chista explains what Rami Barhama missed. Now, this was the question we were debating. It was great. And Rami Barhama says, that is an easy question. I know the answer. And Rav Chista says, okay, so what's the answer? And what does Rami Barhama do? Demands an act of service. So let me frame this for you. Teaching somebody else is the ultimate teaching somebody else is the ultimate way to benefit somebody without you yourself sacrificing a loss, right? When you as a teacher teach, you're not only not losing, you're actually benefiting from the fact that you know you, you always learn something better when you teach it. So this is a case where what is the clear case of one benefits while another suffers no loss, right? Rami Barkhama is not suffering any loss here. And Rav Chista could benefit from getting Rami Barkhama's idea out into the open. But Rami Barkhama refuses to engage in this one benefits while that one suffers no loss. He says, no, I'm demanding payment. Fold my, do an act of service, fold my scarf. And it's interesting that immediately following that, the Gemara rejects his idea. Maybe it wasn't a great idea in the first place, but the point is he really missed not only the technical argument, but also the concept, right? the broader concept of benefit. You know, if when we can benefit others without suffering a loss, we should do so. It's the opposite of what Rav Chista did, right? Rav Chista, you could read Rav Chista as a little bit teasing Rami Barkhama. You weren't there with us. But it's also Rav Chista is sharing information. Rami Barkhama wasn't there last night at the study hall. And Rav Chista is being very generous to say, let me tell you what we learned. I'm sharing. It benefits you. And it doesn't cost me anything. There's just an amazing literary construction of, like, in action, these principles, seeing what it does to human relationships when we don't live out this one benefits, well, that one suffers no loss. Okay, let's resume in the in the Talmud for a little while. We're going to skip all the back and forth of the four different, actually five, counting this one, five different possibilities the Gemara raises. And I'm here at the three dots um, uh, um, at the top of the screen share. Um, just to note that the, the Gemara is really struggling with this question, right? We try four different answers to say, is one obligated to... Uh, is one obligated to let the other person benefit while I suffer no loss? In other words, am I obligated to allow a squatter on my property if I know that that person, in this hypothetical theoretical example, if I know that that person won't cost me anything? I know that they'll maintain the property, leave when I need. I wasn't planning to rent out the property anyway. I'm not losing out and they're benefiting because they have a place to stay. Am I obligated to do that? And so the back and forth continues in the Gemara, and then we see here the dilemma was not resolved. So they sent it to the Academy of Rabbi Ami to ask his opinion. Rabbi Ami seems to say uh, that the squatter has the rights. You know, one benefits, the other suffers no loss. And then we have another example. When asked about this dilemma, Rabbi Fia Bar Abba said, let us consider the matter. After waiting and not receiving a response, they sent the question again to Rabbi Fia Bar Abba. He said, they keep sending me this dilemma, and had I found a response to their question, would I not have sent a reply? In other words, he doesn't have an answer. So the Gemara has, you know, really emphasizing here the ambiguity of the situation. Like, it's actually a difficult moral question for the Gemara, or for the rabbis in the Gemara who are who are debating this back and forth. Like, Rabbi Chia Bar Abba doesn't have an answer, and then he just still doesn't have an answer when he gets asked again. It's like, I don't know. I, don't Stop asking me. I'll tell you when I, when I come up with the answer. Um... Then there's a further debate. 
it was stated that the Amoraim discussed this matter between Rav Kahana and Rabbi Yochanan. Um, and Rabbi Abahu, so there's a debate about what Rabbi Yochanan says. Rav Kahana says that Rabbi Yochanan says you don't have to pay rent. Rabbi Abahu says that Rabbi Yochanan says you must pay rent. So if you're the squatter, do you have to pay rent or can you get away rent-free because it's this one benefits while that one suffers no loss? And um, we have yet another example of the Gemara's ambiguity here because the opinion, one of the opinions, the opinion that said the squatter has to pay rent, gets rejected in a pretty um, harsh way. Rabbi Abahu was sitting before Rabbi Yochanan and was saying this over, um, uh, and Rabbi Yochanan remained silent. And Rabbi Abahu thought, so. well, if he's being silent, he's my teacher, he's not correcting me, that must mean he agrees. But that's not true. Here's the Gemara. The reason Rabbi Yochanan was silent was because he wasn't paying attention to Rabbi Abahu. Um, so another sign of ambiguity here, right? The real moral ambiguity. It's not that Rabbi Abahu had a knockout argument. It's that Rabbi Yochanan wasn't paying close enough attention to hear the problematics of what he was saying. Um, okay, here's another really great one. Like a really, uh, this is really like climactic moment of the Gemara's ambiguity in this question. Um, Rabbi Abba Barzabda sent a message to Mari Barma saying, raise the following, ask Rav Huna, raise the following dilemma before Rav Huna. Please ask him for me. Does one who resides in another's courtyard without his knowledge need to pay him or not? Can we, you know, does one who benefits without causing another a loss, do they have to pay? In the meantime, before he was able to respond to the question, Rav Huna died. Well, this is like a real emphasis. Like the Gemara is really driving the point home. Like this is a tough moral question. So there's more. There's all this, um, and um, we'll we'll uh, we'll just sort of note that um, the Gemara then starts to develop a little bit of moral clarity. It seems like Rav Huna's son says, "You don't need to, one who dwells in another's courtyard without their permission doesn't need to pay rent." In other words, one who benefits whilst causing the other no loss has no financial obligation there because we expect the person who owns the courtyard to say, well, that one's benefiting, but I'm not suffering a loss. I wasn't planning to rent out that courtyard anyway. And then we have Rav Sahora saying that in the name of Rav Kuhn, in the name of Rav, in the name of Rav. We have Marba Rav Hashi, we have Rav Yosef, um, and and the, um, the consensus really seems to build here that actually one who is dwelling in another's courtyard uh, without their permission, assuming the courtyard wasn't standing to be rented out, doesn't have to pay rent. In other words, one who benefits while causing somebody else no loss is exempt from payment because we expect morally, because of our common humanity, that if I have a courtyard and I'm not planning to rent it out and there's no harm coming to it, if I have a way to benefit somebody else without costing myself anything, that I'm morally obligated to do that. And so the other person isn't liable to pay me. So that's the conclusion of the Gemara. Um, here, this last section that we're, that we're looking at on the screen is just about the, the examples I mentioned where the Talmud really emphasizes, you know, let's assume that the person living in the house is providing a service to the homeowner. They're preventing deterioration of the property. They're maintaining it. They're catching issues as they arise, or they are, um, or there's some sort of uh, divine or supernatural uh, problem with an uninhabited house that's more dangerous. And so somebody living in that house, or at least using that house, excuse me, or at least using that house is, is taking care of it. 
All right, so let's summarize. We've established that when it comes to a case of benefiting somebody else without suffering a loss, the person who benefited doesn't need to pay. The immediate question that the Rishonim, the medieval commentators, ask on this Talmudic passage, it's just a beautiful Talmudic passage, um, is, um, well, am I allowed to do that a priori? Is that a lechatchila approach? Can I just say, well, I'm going to go squat in my friend's courtyard because I know that he's not planning to rent it out? Um, or is it only after the fact? If some situation happened where I did benefit from somebody else's property, but didn't cause them a loss, um, then I'm then then you can't you can't force me to pay. But maybe I shouldn't have done it in the first place. There's a debate. The expansive way to read the conversation would be uh, even a priori. This is this is a principle that we follow, right? Somebody can um, choose to engage in an action that they know will not cost the other person, um, and the and they are not liable to pay. the The sort of narrow way to read that is: now you're not supposed to squat in somebody else's courtyard without their permission. And this is the more predominant approach in the medieval commentators, you're not really supposed to squat without somebody else's permission. But if you did, we're not going to force you to pay. We're not going to force you to pay rent. An another topic um, related to that is what if, well, uh, let me add one, one other caveat. The phrase that is used in the Talmud is kofin amidat sedom. We force someone to not with the quality of Sodom, to not behave themselves in such a societally destructive way that they're so selfish that even when it literally costs them nothing, they won't help somebody else, right? So we force, we kofin. Um, and it's an interesting question how literal that was also. Do we really mean that? Or is that like a sort of morally, we really scold the person that you really should act this way? Or do we actually force them to do that? And it seems that we actually force the person to do that, at least in moments throughout Jewish history when the rabbis held communal authority, like, for example, at the time of the Talmud or um, in certain communities afterward, not, um, you know, not, uh, let's say, in modern eras when, um, you know, post-Enlightenment uh, Jewish communities in Europe and in the United States, um, but in situations where the rabbis held authority over the economic affairs of the Jewish community, they would force somebody to not act with the quality of Sodom. And it's interesting to think what that means today when we don't force people to act like that, except we do morally, uh, you know, uh, encourage people to continue to follow those precepts. So a couple of other nuances. What about this case of one benefits, the other suffers no loss, but there is a loss, but it's not financial. Meaning, what if my loss is that I have to take extra time? You know, in the time of the Talmud, that might have meant I have to travel a little bit farther on my walk to get to wherever I was going if we set up this arrangement this way versus that way. Is that considered a loss? Or, to relate it to our topic, if I can benefit others by choosing an investment strategy that has somewhat more of a positive impact on the world while still earning me the same financial return. So I'm not suffering a loss, but it takes time to research, right? Does that count as enough of a loss that I can justify getting out of it? It's a debate. Um, 
what about if the benefit will accrue only after some amount of time? The case discussed in the Talmud and that gets picked up by the medievalist is what if I have a um, a cistern of water and I want to drain it because for whatever reason I want to use it, but, but actually people will need that water. Um, or maybe I want to drain it just because and I'm not benefiting from it. But, but people will need that water, but they don't need it immediately. They'll only need it later after some amount of time. And it seems like in that case, in the Talmud, the conversation is that that you're still not allowed to, you know, if you're really suffering no loss, if you really don't need that cistern emptied, then you're not allowed to drain it just because, right? Even if people will only benefit after time. Leads to our conversation, because what if the impact of my investing strategies really only plays out over the course of years? You know, what if socially responsible investing has an impact, moves the needle, but it's a slow movement of the needle? So I will put out the claim based on our Talmudic evidence and the conversations in the uh, medievalists, in their medieval commentaries in the Rishonim, that if it's possible to benefit another person without suffering a loss, if it's possible to do if it's possible to make a difference, a positive difference in the world without costing myself financial return, then I have a religious and halachic obligation to do so. So that's the Jewish case for socially responsible investing. Now, there's a lot of nuance there because there's a lot of nuance in socially responsible investing. So there's a number of different strategies. I talk about these more in my book. And um, if there are questions that come up, we can talk about, we can go more in depth into these, but I'll just lay out that there are different strategies, right? One I mentioned already is called negative screens, screening out, not investing in certain sectors that it's against my values to profit from. So maybe tobacco in that I'm uh, literally profiting from the blood of my neighbor because we know that tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death and cause in uh, in this country every year and causes tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, it's the only substance on the market that I know of that when you use it as designed, it kills you, um, kills the user. So, um, so investing in tobacco, which, you know, tobacco itself is now with the science of the past 50 years is clearly and across the board, a consensus that, in, that smoking to, smoking cigarettes is a violation of this principle of caring for your own health. It's a violation of the Torah. So, so investing in that would seem to be um, really problematic. So do I have an obligation to not invest in that? Well, that's one tactic, negative screens. Um, another tactic, it's another way to approach socially responsible investing is to say, well, if I am invested in a company every year, that means that I get a vote at the company shareholder meeting when shareholders put resolutions on the ballot for all the investors in the company to vote on. Because in some way, at least in secular law, bigger question in Jewish law, but in some way, um, in secular law, we're all owners. So we all have a vote at the annual meeting. And if there's a campaign at the annual meeting, do I have a responsibility to vote my proxies, to vote my shares? I'm thinking about a company like Wells Fargo that engaged in really problematic practices in terms of fraud and deception that were not only violations of secular law, but you could argue were violations of Jewish law or what Judaism expects of a Ben Noach, of even you know a, a sort of a, a non-Jewish uh, person, not all of the mitzvot, not all 613, but at least minimal expectations of decent human behavior. Wells Fargo... <laughs> we cheated and stole, if you want to put it in those terms. Um, so uh, 
do I have an obligation to vote my shares, to vote my proxies at that annual meeting? That's another way to have impact that a lot of us aren't taking advantage of, but it's very powerful when we do. If a huge movement of people does, a huge number of people. Um, and then there are questions about what about what about this one benefits and that one does suffer a loss because there are certain kinds of impact that one can only have by being willing to take what's called a concessionary rate of return, meaning I'm conceding some amount of return, financial return that I could earn. Instead of earning 7%, I'm earning 2%. Maybe the impact that my money is having is far greater. Maybe I've lent it to one of those, um, they're called community development financial institutions that is doing lending to communities that were facing redlining and that didn't have access to capital because banks shut them out. And you know they're doing incredibly impactful work getting capital into the hands of people who need it, but maybe the financial return is lower than what I could earn if I invest in a tobacco company or a uh, even not, even a Wells Fargo. So what obligation do I have there? Um, Eddie, how, do I have, how am I doing on time? Do I have time for one more thought or should we pause it there? Okay. So I'm going to share one more thought about that last question, right? So we've established if I can benefit others without costing myself anything, I have a religious obligation to do so. What about if I can benefit others, but I cost myself something? So the place this conversation happens in the Talmud is around loans. And we don't have time to go deep into the concept of interest-free loans, but we know that the rough parameters are that I, according to the Torah, am allowed to make a loan with interest to a stranger or somebody who's not a member of my community, but I cannot make a loan with interest. I have to make a free loan, meaning no interest charged, to, to, if, I'm, if I'm dealing with a community member, a member of my own community. Um, and a uh, reminder that that free loan is not giving away money, I still expect to get all of that money returned. It's a 0% return. It's not a negative 100% return. It's not like I'm giving the money away, but I'm not earning interest. It's not like a 2% interest or 5% interest or something like that. So what if I have a choice? What if I have a member of my community who's asking for a loan for their business to get back on its feet after something happened, and I have that opportunity and I would earn 0% interest, or I have a person who's a, a person I don't know, a stranger who's not a member of my community, and I could earn 10% interest making a loan to them. What should I do? The Talmud discusses that. And there's a, there's a sense, the statement of the Talmud is a little ambiguous. It says, well, really, you should lend to the person in your community. And morally, that sounds right. Like sort of, we should aspire to be the um, the the pious person that we that we saw in the mission that we first looked at. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours. So of course, you know, the highest highest standard would be for me to make the loan that causes me to sacrifice some amount of financial return that I could be earning in order to help somebody more. But um, but am I obligated to? And that gets resolved in the negative. After a somewhat robust debate, more robust than you might expect, um, but Rob Moshe Feinstein, writing in the 20th century, um, notes that in cases like that, it, it, it goes back to the mission we looked at. Um, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. That's a case where we can talk about sodomite qualities. But what's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours, that's already pious. That's above, that's above and beyond, right? When it comes to sacrificing of myself, in order to help somebody, that's when the calculation changes. And I'm not, I don't have the same level of moral obligation. Okay, um, let's pause there. Maybe I can hear any questions. And then um, depending on what the questions are, we can share more. Amazing. You have two questions from our online Zoom. 
um, that's streaming on Facebook. One of the questions is, um, how do you feel about people who say that all philanthropic billionaires are bad, therefore we shouldn't invest in them because morally they are bad? That's question number one. And question number two is, should you still ethically invest in big companies like Google that benefits you but is known to be troublesome like other organizations are who have also been known to be troublesome? Okay, those are great questions. Um, the first one, I'm not sure I totally got the the nuance of um, investing in philanthropic um, billionaires. I'm not sure I totally got the nuance, the, the question there, but but I'll just say that. Um, so first of all, just to distinguish between philanthropic, right? So we're not talking, talking about philanthropy or giving money away. That's a very important topic for another time, but we're talking about investing money. And so I'm going to sort of relate these two questions together. What does it mean to invest money in a venture that maybe isn't so clear cut as a, a violation of Jewish values like tobacco, um, but investing in a company that has ups and downs and, and, um, uh, there's no, you know, the phrase I, I, I've um, often heard used is there's no such thing as a perfect company from a Jewish values perspective. Right? We're dealing with real entities that have things that they do well and things that they don't do well or ways that they benefit society and ways that they may be harming society. And so in those cases, um, that gets to um, sort of the tactics of what is our, what are our, what are the tools in our toolbox for socially responsible investing? So one tool in the toolbox is screening out negative screens, not investing in certain sectors. That tool makes sense when the sector has a core business model that is just not aligned with Jewish values. Or when the sector has been the target of these voting campaigns or these advocacy campaigns, or investors have sought to sit down with the company and meet with them and even pressure them, and the company has been unresponsive. So I'll give you an example. Um, core business model of Exxon is extracting fossil fuels. And Exxon has been doing it for decades, despite knowing with shocking accuracy the impact that those products would have on the global climate, leading to things like abnormally bitter cold weather and smoke blanketing New York and giving New York the worst air quality in the world last summer for a number of days. Um, right? we, we sort of could have predicted some. And in fact, Exxon did predict some of these things. Um, decades ago in the 70s and 80s. So um, we also know that at this point, we don't need any more fossil fuel infrastructure. We don't want to turn off the tap immediately, right? We want to care for the people who still need access to that energy. But actually, renewables are cheaper to build. They're being deployed rapidly and they're accelerating. And we don't need new expanded fossil fuel infrastructure, which is what Exxon's business model is designed to build. So that's one issue, core business model. And then another issue is responsiveness to advocacy. That's a company that has been really unresponsive to advocacy, right? It's made superficial changes, but um, even when shareholders escalated as far as they could go in 2021 by replacing a quarter of Exxon's board, the highest governing body of the company with what shareholders called climate competent, quote unquote, directors. Still, the company hasn't made a significant pivot towards renewables or away from its core business model of extraction. That's a good indicator that that might be a time to apply the tactic of negative screens. With some other companies, it's less cut and dry. Google or Alphabet is a company whose core business model is not necessarily opposed to Jewish values. And it's a company that does some things very well. And it's a company that has 
some negative impacts on the world. I'm thinking about YouTube and anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. That's under the alphabet, the Google umbrella, um, and you know, searches on Google. There are all sorts of problems that have come up around that, around um, uh, you know, name the company and we can name the problems. So that's when the tactic of what's called shareholder advocacy makes a lot of sense. Um, I argue in my book that shareholder advocacy might also be a Jewish obligation because we might even see um, we might even see these companies, these corporations as, um, you know, they're not, and they're not humans, but actually under secular law, they sort of are, they're considered persons, they're not natural persons, but they, you know, they have certain rights. So maybe they have certain responsibilities too. And from a Jewish perspective, maybe that means they have the responsibility to obey what's called the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, the seven Noachide laws, basic expected standards of human decency. And when a company doesn't do that, maybe that means that we have an obligation to rebuke them or to engage with them. Um, so that's another tactic. And then a third tactic to think about is moving money into causes that are clearly positive, making a positive difference and achieving positive impact. So like I mentioned, those community development financial institutions, which lend capital out to communities that have less access to it. That's just a huge service being done. That's a real positive impact. Another example on the climate side is like climate solutions. You know, you invest in solar panels um, of course, you then need to be careful that you're still encouraging the company to source those solar panels responsibly, right? There's no such thing as a perfect company. That's another tactic is investing in the solutions we want to see. Um, okay. Other, are there other questions out there? Should, um, let me pause there for a second. I have a, a question, but it's okay. Yeah, go for it. Um, I was wondering, um, what your thoughts are on Jewish communities who have invested in alcohol and should we still invest in them as it uplifts our community, but could still harm others? Yeah, that's a great question. And it gets to that question of negative screens. What exactly, what exactly falls in the category of negative screens? And I'll say that, um, the field, the socially responsible investing field in some ways started with negative screens. And it was a, um, you know, huge credit goes to Protestant denominations, really, for launching this field back in the 60s, um, and in some cases, even earlier. But um, they they used what they called the Christian sin stocks. So alcohol, tobacco, gambling, we can think of a few others, adult entertainment, um, for some Christian denominations, abortifacients or chemicals that induce abortion were on that list. All right, so there's this list of like negative screens that align, they call Christian sin stocks. And those have carried through in the socially responsible investing arena, even though this arena is now um, is now secular. Really, it's, you know, it's, there there are faith groups, but there's also secular investors or values driven investors that aren't approaching things from a faith lens. But those Christian sin stocks have still sort of they're like a part of the. I heard somebody say once they're part of a tradition of the field, right? So those are very prominent. But a Jewish approach doesn't doesn't necessarily align in the same way. There might be some overlap, like I'm thinking about tobacco, but a Jewish approach is much more nuanced. Like what I mentioned, corporate behavior plays a role. How do corporations respond to engagement? So, um, I mean, you're right, Isaac, that uh, alcohol is not something that's prohibited by Jewish law. In fact, it's uh, a core part of our uh, 
of our ritual. And so screening out alcohol wouldn't make a lot of sense from a Jewish investor's perspective. We, you know, alcohol use ought to be in moderation, it ought to be done responsibly. But saying, you know, we're not going to invest in that because it's against our values wouldn't make a lot of sense. For a Muslim investor, it would, right? If you're if you're if you're Muslim and you and, and you believe that drinking alcohol is prohibited by your religion, and you might say, I'm not going to invest in it either. I'm not going to profit from it if I'm not going to drink it. But um, but yeah, so that that wouldn't be a um in, in my mind, at least, that wouldn't be a negative screen that a Jewish institution or a Jewish individual would necessarily adopt. Thank you, Rabbi. I have a question, if you don't mind. Is there ever a blurred line between tzedakah and investing? Oh, that's also a great question. And it gets to this question of concessionary returns, right? Which is this whole zenehenevizelochaser, one benefits while the other suffers no loss. What if you do suffer a loss? How much loss? <laughs> when does it start to become? Um, so I'm going to use a little bit. I'm just like... Hopefully, this financial terminology is 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 graspable, um, but I'll try to explain it really, really straightforwardly. So when I invest my money, I expect to earn a financial return, right? If I'm investing $100, I want to get back 105. That's a 5% return. Now, if I were to instead take those $100 and make an interest-free loan through whatever, the Hebrew Free Loan Society, to somebody in need, maybe a member of my community who needs a leg up, and then they pay that money back. So I have gotten $100 back. I haven't earned any more or any less. That's a 0% return. You can imagine very high high returns, right? 5% is just an example, but you can imagine very high returns. You can imagine 0%. Um, concessionary returns, like I mentioned before, usually are between the two, right? Um, free loans are one example of a concessionary return. It's like, you know, no return, 0%. But you can imagine earning 1% instead of 5% or 2% instead of 10%. That's conceding financial return. That's giving up what I could be earning. But it's not exactly tzedakah, right? It's, it's, it's still, I'm still expecting a financial return. Um, and in some ways, that kind of money can actually go farther, right? That's the model of those community development financial institutions. Because then when they get paid back that 2% loan, they can then lend that money out. So it's very impactful. It, money that keeps on giving, but um, but it's not tzedakah, right? Tzedakah would be if I gave that $100 away and expected none of it back, that's a negative 100% return. So whenever we give charitably, we're giving, we're, we are expecting a negative 100% return financially, right? We might be expecting other impact in the world. When I donate money, I expect, you know, if I'm donating money to Jewish education, I might expect a positive impact, but I'm not expecting to get that $100 back. Um, so as you can see, there's this blurred line all across the board, right? There's this really the spectrum, it's often, is the word often used in the impact investing arena, um, for everything from what's called market rate return, which is that full expectation of I'm just going to earn as much as I could investing, quote unquote, conventionally, or investing without an eye to my religious values or my faith values or my ethics, Right. If I th that's what I'm going to expect. I don't know what that is. Maybe that's nine percent, seven percent. In it depends on the year. Depends on which market: United States, Europe, etc. But whatever I could earn there, that's what I'm going to look for. And if I can achieve that while doing some good or doing less harm in the world, that's what I'll do. That might be appropriate for an institution that relies on that financial return, has a fiduciary commitment. But um, but then there might be somebody who, you know, an institution or you know, I'm thinking even of a foundation, maybe there's a foundation that's wealthier or has the capital that, and, and, and has the ability to take some risks. And that 
foundation might say, well, we're going to try some concessionary return investing. We're not going to think of it as our as our philanthropic donations because we're not giving that money away. We expect it back with a 2%, 3% return, but it is a sacrifice for us. Right? It is a financial sacrifice for us that we're engaging in to achieve greater impact in the world, for that money to go farther, to help people more, to be less exploitative, whatever it is. Um, and then that spectrum, you know, to free loans, interest-free loans, and then that spectrum sort of continues all the way. So yeah, absolutely, you can look at it on a, on a spectrum, as much as I try to separate the two topics, so that charitable giving is its own topic, and we're talking about investing here, but you're right, they're really on a spectrum. Okay, amazing. So, um, I'll just drop the link here one more time to my book and to this source sheet. Um, and I would invite uh, your thoughts and comments. There's a lot more um, in the book that goes a lot more in depth about um, different asset classes. Those are things like what about investing in big public corporations versus investing in bonds versus investing in like a local organic grocery store. You know, all those are different asset classes and they have different ways that we can achieve impact and different things that Jewish values say about them. Um, the topic of negative screens, what does it make sense? What are frames that we can use as Jewish investors to think about what we should screen out? Um, and then that question of financial return. And the last thing I'll say um, before I hand it back um, to Eddie is this question of financial return more sort of spiritually depends on what's enough. What is enough? And doing that work of thinking for ourselves, what are my financial goals? What is enough? For some folks, that will mean that I need to invest market rate return. I need to have the highest financial return I can possibly have. I need to be able to afford whatever it is, retirement or supporting these core programs of my Jewish institution that are serving needy people. But understanding what is enough creates the space to say, well, once I've achieved enough, and by the way, useful to benchmark that so you don't let it creep. Once I've achieved enough or I have more than enough, or in some cases, it is true that some of us have too much and we would actually be happier with less. So in those moments, knowing those limits or like when have I achieved enough, more than enough and too much, that enables us to make some of those choices. If I can benefit without, if I can benefit somebody else without causing myself a loss, if I can benefit somebody else even more by taking a small loss, still earning some amount of financial return where uh you know where where do i fall on that spectrum and, and how can i spiritually challenge myself to always be moving farther along that spectrum perfect thank you so much rabbi jacob this has been an incredible way to start our morning to think about how we invest ethically i think a lot of us are are thinking about that right now especially so we appreciate you. Um, I want to make sure everybody has a chance to see the link. We will also be sharing that on the recordings and the source sheets uh, to check out Rabbi Siegel's book, because I know that we were left with more questions that time um, can can allow us to answer. So we appreciate your time, Rabbi. Um, we hope all of you check out the book. Um, we will be copying the link again. Thank you again, Rabbi. Have an amazing day for all of you who are listening. Take care. Thank you all. Take care.